This week on The Futurist, Brian Solis. Even when presented with facts and solutions, humanity doesn't want to see it or deal with it. And they'll pretend that it doesn't exist. And so 30 years from now, I feel like we have to control, alt, delete, and reboot humanity. Welcome back to The Futurists. I am Brett King with my co-host, Rob Tersek, in the hot seat. I just came in, um, you know, we're recording this just in the midst of um, Hurricane Ian, isn't it, Rob? That's what it's called, the hurricane. And uh, I just landed at Rally and I was telling Rob and and Brian before I landed, it was was an insane landing. So um, I'm glad to be here to be able to bring you this recording because it was quite quite a uh, quite a feat but um we have quite a show for you today we have um the inimitable brian solis joining us a, a good pal um we we met um more than i think a decade ago on the speaking circuit and uh since then you know, became fast friends if you don't know him he's a global innovation evangelist for salesforce he's an eight times best-selling author um we had him on uh, breaking banks to review his book lifescale um which uh came out a couple of years ago um continues to do very well um really interesting book uh he's he's a digital anthropologist he's obviously a futurist that's why he's on the show you can check out more about brian on brian but brian welcome to the futurists wow well it's uh, it's wonderful to say that i already predicted this a few years back that it would happen <laughs> uh today it'd be on the show <laughs> We will talk about prediction, won't we, Rob? We we do talk about that, and some futurists don't like to do predictions, and they 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 dance around it and say forecasting, um, you know, and that's that's and some don't like forecasting. We had someone on who said, yeah, "I don't do forecasting." Exactly. And I'm like, well, yeah, then, yeah. What exactly? Or scenario planning. Yeah, <laughs> but right. um, right. you know, that is at the heart of futurism is is being able to sort of at least say where the um you know, where things are going and, and you have to make some form of uh, guesstimates or, or prediction, although it is, as you rightly point out, you know, scenario building and so forth. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, what what's it like? You know, you, you were a free spirit out on the road, you know, you got your books and you're on the speaking circuit and now you're working for... Uh, for Salesforce, Salesforce. admittedly quite a dynamic, uh, innovative organization, but, um, you know, how has it been, you know, sort of being hemmed in, I guess, (laughs) or, or is that accurate? I don't know. (laughs) It, uh, you're coming from a free spirit and entrepreneur and one of the world's, um, one of the world's most foremost thought leaders in a variety of subjects and also authors. I mean, I get, I get where you're coming from. You're like, what, basically you could have asked in another way, what made you go inside of a corporate gig, you know, or, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I joined, I probably joined the only organization that I could have imagined joining. Uh, you know, it is, it is rightly so an innovative company, but it's also one that's living its mantra of, uh, business is the greatest catalyst for change or could be. Uh, you know, Mark Benioff is certainly of all of the the leaders out there whom we look to or quote often or cite often. He is he's the real deal, and he's trying to build a better future. He puts uh, he puts his money you know, towards that better future. He's he's really all about sustainability and empowerment and and uh, diversity and inclusion. And it's it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty special place to be. Plus, it's a role that was created for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brian, for our listeners who aren't familiar, do you mind sharing with, with us exactly what it is that Salesforce does? Because we hear the term sales automation. What does that really mean in practice? What is it that Salesforce makes? For sure. Well, if you if you look us up, you'll buy the ticker symbol. It's CRM. And that is it. Customer relationship management. It's basically the platform for your business. Uh, it's the integration of all the data, all the customer data across your organization. So whether it's marketing, sales, service, commerce, uh, and then the ability, you know, barring, 
your your own operational infrastructure, which which we can also help change. The technology itself allows you to move at the speed of the customer, have insights at the speed of the customer, be able to personalize the speed of the customer across all of those departments. And then you add AI automation, things like Einstein within, within that mix. And you really get the single view of a customer whom you could not only just personalize that engagement, deliver the type of personal services that they start to expect. So essentially it's like an operating system for your for your business. That's uh, just like, like the 10 second or less. Yeah, no, that's good. That's helpful. Cause I think like the problem that it solves, like 20 years ago, uh, big organizations were quite aware that inside of their company, they had a lot of employees who had a lot of knowledge about customers, but all that knowledge was stuck in their heads. So mm-hmm. there was no way for them and to- And left when they left the organization. Yeah, that's, that's the other right. problem is when they yeah. when they'd switch to a new job, that knowledge walked out the door. And so companies were trying all sorts of arcane things like cobbling together intranets to try to get people to like post their contacts and share their leads, which of course salespeople are going to be resistant to quite naturally. Uh, But it seems like Salesforce has actually solved that problem. And that's a pretty big problem. It's basically like institutional memory and awareness for an organization uh, that otherwise is all just, you know, in the heads of the employees. And well, listen, it also um, it forces the transformation of an organization. Not that we have to get stuck on this, but if you think about it, businesses for the most part, let's let's use the word legacy businesses, they're built upon 50, 60 year old models that yeah. were meant to optimize the specific disciplines within the company, whether that was you know, customer service or marketing or sales. Uh, and marketing itself, for example, Production is, lines. is you yeah. know, broken into 10 or 15 different organizations, whether that's email or web or what have you. And the ability to sort of, bring those groups together to create a sort of this cross-functional real-time business that that is is of the times that's what this is also about so it's part you know it's part software but it's also part business transformation and that's that's where i live is working with c-suites of companies to help them not just see what technology can do for them but what technology allows for them to do differently and awesome that that's really uh that's what inspires me before we jump into the full-on futurist conversation, um, you know we have a we have a bit of a thing we're trying out here, which is um, we like to look at some of the future-focused stuff in the news. Did you find anything this in, this week of interest, Rob? Oh yeah, I've got a couple news items. Let's do the news. Okay, yeah. so uh, these are developments that we're going to keep track of on the futurists. Uh, there's always a few topics that we come back to. They seem to be recurring topics for us. And one you brought up already, Brett, which is climate. Uh, it seems like not a week can go by with, without one of the futurists on our show bringing up the concept of climate change. It's been a year of, you know, heat waves, uh, floods, other kinds of fun. You know, out here in California, fires, as always, it's like a new season, the fire season. And Hurricane Ian is in the news today uh, all over the place because in, in the words of Wired Magazine, which is a great article, they talk about it as uh, a message from the future. In other yeah. words, this is the kind of storm we can expect to see more and more in the future as um, as the water temperature increases, that increases the force and the volatility of the storms. And um, and in addition to that, the currents are moving north. Uh, the heat is moving north. So actually, we're going to start to see more and more hurricanes forming off the east coast of the United States. Uh, so that pretends some real serious trouble in the future. And in that article, they have a really interesting quote from a, a climatologist who says that we can no longer consider these natural disasters. They're going to have to be reclassified as man-made disasters I, because I think humans that's aren't right. taking any effort. Like we're still building. We have this wow. notion of like rebuild on the coast, rebuild, restore everything like that was that. like you know wiped out. And he's saying that that's not going to hold. We're going to stop doing that eventually. So that's that's story number one. Uh, sorry, but you were about to say, I didn't mean to step on you. No, no, no. I, no, I just think that's, that's, Brian, I think so we should reframe sometimes. it like that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a powerful story. It's in yeah. Wired. I recommend you check it out. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, hurricane is a message from the future. The second point uh, is that um, Google made a pretty big announcement. As, as you may be aware, Google has been cutting back on spending like many big tech companies since the downturn at the beginning of this year. And uh, this week they did quite a, a surprising thing. Uh, they shut down Google Stadia. Google Stadia was um, uh, an innovative project, a streaming game platform, basically uh, a game platform without any any uh, hardware. And novel idea, and it wasn't unsuccessful. Uh, they had kind of have a, a rough launch in 2019, but it had been going along and they actually had users and it seemed like it was going fine, but apparently uh, Google higher up in the organization decided they could no longer afford to pay for the service. And they just chopped it with really no notice. Uh, so the Google has said they're going to make good on any consumers that spent money on hardware. They're going to reimburse them. That's cool. 
uh, or for game purchases that they made. But the big issue here is that there are a lot of game developers that signed up for this service and they have been investing a lot of effort and time in building games. If you're familiar with the game industry, you'll know that game developers don't really invest money, they invest time. That's what, that's what they have, that's the resource they have to invest. And so when they bet on your platform, they're betting with their scarce resource, time. And now there are a lot of disappointed developers who have been working hard to build games to Stadia specifications at Google's request. And these people are now going to be out of an outlet, completely cut off, cut off from customers and revenue. Uh, it's very unclear, and it has been handled very, very poorly. Uh, one of the points that was raised, which I think is really noteworthy, uh, as you'll know, I'm a, a huge fan of the concept of dematerialization and um, the idea of replacing physical stuff with software. So this was an interesting experiment to me. Um, when a dematerialized service goes out of business, what goes with it isn't just the service, but the content. And so it looks like there's a bunch of games that are going to be taken offline and they'll be gone for good. So that's Google Stadia, big change, sort of an abrupt change from Google this week. Um, the last one is one that I'm most excited by, and we're definitely going to drill deeper into this topic, which is about AI-assisted art generation. It's been a lively oh, yeah. topic for the last few months, yeah. uh, first with the introduction of um, uh, DALI 2, the second edition of OpenAI's um, software, AI-driven software that will develop images for you based on a text input. So basically, you type in keyword prompts, and it generates an image. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, an alternative AI was introduced called Mid Journey, which quite a few artists gravitated towards. And there's quite a lot of innovation. If you search on the web, you'll see a lot of great innovation around Mid Journey. And then just over a month ago, another one was introduced called Stable Diffusion. And Stable Diffusion is actually provided as open source, free of charge software that you can download. And as a result, in the last month, there has been a phenomenal number of innovations introduced on that platform. It's breathtaking because it's breaking every day. There's new news, but people are using uh, stable diffusion in a number of unexpected ways. And I guess the point here is for a long time, people thought that creative uh, work, creative services were something that would be immune to automation. And what we're seeing now in th this summer is that that myth has been dismantled. It's not just GPT-3, which can write compelling copy, and of course, GPT-4, which will probably be coming, be coming soon and will probably be able to generate copy akin to what you get from a copywriter. It, it you know, is. It's going to be indistinguishable yeah, yeah. from human saying. copy. But now you're starting to see artwork by AI generators that is akin to artwork that could be done by, an art, by a human artist. Again, these are early generation. They're going to improve over time. But, but I guess the point I'm making here is that just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen tremendous amounts of innovation and improvement. Now, just this week, there's been an announcement of three new services, one where you can simply text in and it'll generate a 3D item for you. So they're now using the same concept to generate three-dimensional objects, which will be quite useful if the metaverse actually comes to pass. Um, another version will generate uh, 3D animation. And a third, which was introduced by Meta, formerly uh, Facebook, it's called Make a Video. And you can just type a text description and it will generate a video. So you can type in a description that says, show me an astronaut riding a horse on the surface of, of Mars. And it will generate that video for you. Uh, as goofy as that idea sounds, there's something here that's linked uh, in my mind to uh, the advent of desktop publishing, believe it or not, in the late 1990s, where um, you know the first wave of innovation that came from desktop publishing was a bunch of truly awful yard sale signs and restaurant posters and stuff that were just terrible. Like people with zero talent whatsoever were able to generate a print a printed thing that looked, you know, I guess okay, but it was really poorly designed. But really quickly after that, we saw design breakthrough to a new level where yeah. you know, a report or a document that you would produce actually had to be presented at a certain level. There's an expectation, you know, even a PowerPoint presentation. I think something similar is going to happen with clip art. Um, you're going to start to see people adopt AI-generated imagery and possibly video uh, across the board. So those are three breaking stories from the future. We'll be covering awesome. the last one for sure in the, uh, in the very near future. So let me kick this off, Brian, with asking you a fairly simple question. When did you know you were a futurist? I, when, I, when, did, I, when did you know that this is what you wanted to do, to talk about the future? Uh, it, 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 it wasn't a choice, to be honest. It was just sort of a necessity. I came up in Silicon Valley, right? That's where talking about the future is... is Part of your calling card you know every every sentence every sentence begins with imagine if uh, so i guess it was just sort of by uh, 
you know, by proximity. But the difference was, is that in the mid 1990s with the rise of, you know, the, I was there for the shift between hardware and software uh, in Silicon Valley. And what really inspired me was most people there get caught up in the tech and it's still the case. I was more fascinated with market development and adoption. And I was really inspired by Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm and realized that part of those baton passes from you know, early adopters to mass market majority were it was the human humanization of that story. So the ability to sort of take that tech and play it out immediately and over time and what those scenarios could look like in the day-to-day -day aspects of whomever our stakeholder was, whether it's a business customer or consumer, that discipline, I guess you could call a practice of futurism. And it was then that that practice, I didn't call it a futurist mm -hmm. or futurism, but that practice was was honed in, the, in, in that time and still continues to this day. I like that. That's a that's like practical futurism or applied futurism to solve a problem. And I really like that. That's that's really consistent with the approach we're taking on this show. You know, in a sense, we're trying to reclaim that word futurism um, because there's a lot of futurism as entertainment, you know, fluff, uh, you know, kind of like, well, you know, like someday this will happen. It's pretty easy to make those kinds of armchair predictions. Uh, but Brett and I have been trying to drill a little deeper and say, okay, well, how do you pin that prediction down? Or how do you, you know, relate that forecast to trends that are actually happening that we can identify today? What are the telltale signs that it's going to come true and so forth? And what you're describing is that you're doing that in the context of a real business. My belief is that every business needs somebody like that on their team because the world is changing very quickly and we need more people yeah, who are disciplined and thinking about the future. Yeah. What what's what's your process for staying on top of this you know this sort of subject matter, Brian? You know, I could I could have answered that uh, much more successfully ten ten years ago. And and, and I, I know you I know you get this. I've been following your career. I've been following your books, and to watch watch your own story arc evolve has been sort of I got to imagine uh, a reflection of the same challenge I have, which is yeah, what doesn't intrigue you uh, uh -huh. and and it, originally i i aimed to just focus on consumer facing technologies you know, and and at the at that time it was the consumerization of the internet it was the digitization of a lot of hardcore devices that were going to change consumer engagement and communication so like smartphones uh digital cameras online photo sharing, which would eventually lead to you know, the Instagrams of the world, social media, like those, those things were, were truly fascinating. But then I started to, the, the more you plan outward, you start to say, you start to see other factors that are going to start to reshape everything. So as Rob referred to things like AI, uh, video and image, uh, creation, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, uh, RPA, uh, robotics, those things started to to fascinate me because I I knew that the direct applications would be in things that we would see every day. So I studied. I published one of the first reports on uh, autonomous vehicles and where the where where self driving cars were going to go. I looked at uh, how that that technology was going to uh, affect things like digital twins and the ability to uh, develop intelligence so that you know, played out in a variety of things of music, uh, Hollywood wrote some of those first reports. Yeah, those, <laughs> those things started to, I, I wrote some, I presented in India right before, as COVID was shutting down the world on quantum computing. It, I, it's awesome. too much. It's too much yeah. is, is the answer. <laughs> and so I'm, tr I'm trying to reel it back in. It is quite fascinating, though, because like literally you know, in the past, you could follow a certain thread into the future. But like you're saying, each innovation introduces other innovations. And so it's an ever expanding cone of possibility. And if you try to follow them all, you're going to dissipate your energy. What's your methodology <laughs> yes. for staying on track? Like, dissipating. How do you say, this dissipating. is interesting, but not important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how, how do you filter? How do you filter? I'm filtering now around very specific things. Uh, so they they have to they have to either affect customer experience uh, and or they have to affect innovation and innovation can apply to business transformation, product development as it relates to market evolution. Uh, so I guess that's probably the best way 
uh, as you can hear the dogs barking here, uh, they really are fascinated by market evolution. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anytime I say that, they just go crazy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> like all of us, your dogs are barking. <laughs> uh, so, but I have this whole, I've actually had to develop it into a mind map. And that mind map is what I share within our, our organization at Salesforce. These are all the things that I will focus on and help our customers build upon, but I could give you a, a, just a quick sampling. In the last two weeks, we've explored uh, how customer evolution in terms of behaviors, expectations, preferences are going to be uh, in, in what they're going to look like 18, 24, 36 months, 48 months from now, and then how the evolution of business investments in say each discipline, service, marketing, commerce, uh, and overall leadership how are those are tracking towards those trends? And for the most part, they're not. Uh, you know, this is a giant topic. I, one of the things I really want to get into with you is CX and consumer experience. And also, I want to talk about the flip side of that, which is consumer evolution. Um, so why don't we do this? Um, we're going to go to break in a minute. But before we go to break, we have this thing we like to do, which is a lightning round. Um, that's where uh, we're going to get a series of questions asked by my co-host Brett King. Hey Brett, do the do the lightning round, and then we'll take a break. All right, this is none of this is none of this is too serious, Brian. So you don't have to stress out. Like I'm not going to ask any family secrets or anything. But let's jump in. What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to, either on TV or via books? I think it was Edward James Burroughs. Uh, uh, what the John Carter of Ed, Mars, or? You mean like the John Carter books? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh, we all read those. Oh yeah. my God, that's great. Yes, and right. and also it appears to be the same thing that uh, it's it's led to all of us only wearing black shirts. I guess. Yes, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I do have, I don't know if you can see that. I've got the Mars thing on on here, but um, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, name a futurist that has influenced you, and why? Peter Schwartz. Yeah, he's uh, he's our chief futurist uh, in residence here at Salesforce, uh, and I believe it or not, I, I was introduced to his his work in the in the in the nerdiest of ways, which was uh, Minority Report and understanding. I really was fascinated by how someone could see so accurately what I I, I just believed everything that he envisioned was 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 right on right on track but he's Very also cool. um one of the most approachable uh scenario planners ever uh he makes everything that's so complicated seem so tangible and i guess i guess we're gonna have to get him on the show yeah his book is incredibly <laughs> practical as well you can use it as a handbook for doing scenario planning awesome so what do you think is the best prediction or forecast a futurist has ever made <laughs> my goodness that's a tough one, actually. I don't, I don't, I'll have to get back to you on that one. I, right. I don't really, I don't That's really fine. know. Um, what science fiction story or future world vision is most representative of the future? You know, you hey, Brett, for? I'm going to, let me come back to that last one. You know, your book, okay, Augmented, uh, was, I thought, really right on. You know, because well, you, thank you. You had made, uh, you had made Very the leap nice from, from, uh, I, I forgot Banking. what iteration of the future banks you were on. Uh, and, I, I know I wasn't the only one that felt that because didn't I, didn't that book get optioned? Uh, it did. Yeah, we're producing a TV show out of New Zealand right now on it. So yeah, awesome. Thank you, dude. Uh, that's really nice of you to say. Um, and what future tech? And we'll get into this a little bit more in the second half. But what future technology do you most hope for? Digital humans uh, and digital twinning. I'm really. Um, it, that and I'll be super fast with this answer. I was originally inspired by the idea that you could feed uh, the right engines and algorithms, uh, notes and sound bites and thoughts and answers and decisions from loved ones. So after they pass it, you could keep their sort of yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the idea of them alive. But I've been doing work with companies like Soul Machines, and yeah, uh, we've been out of uh, New Zealand, out of New Zealand, right? And yeah. uh, doing all kinds of really cool, really cool experiments, and it's. The That's number cool. one thing that when people think about digital humans or robots is that it's going to replace human beings. And I see it as being um, augmented, uh, pun intended, uh, to actually do some awesome stuff together. Awesome. Well, that's great. So listen, after the break, we want to dive into a little bit more detail uh, about some of the issues that you're 
passionate about and where uh, where you think humanity is going and, and what we can do about it, what each of us can do about it. But before that, let's take a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists with Rob Tursek and myself, Brett King. And our guest for this week is Brian Solis. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist Podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with co-host Brett King, and our guest this week is Brian Solis, who's been giving us a download on innovation, consumer experience, and customer evolution. We're going to continue with that conversation in a minute, but first, I want to share with you one more news item. Uh, this is all about Starlink. And as everybody knows, um, SpaceX's Starlink has been providing a decisive advantage to the Ukrainian army in their defense against the uh, Russian invasion that's occurred. And what I thought I'd do today is share with you some interesting uh, background on that that might, be, might, not, might not be as well known. Um, so last week, the Russians made an unambiguous threat to attack Starlink. Uh, this happened in the context of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group, uh, which is a group that meets in uh, Switzerland, and they're working on reducing space-based threats, including the militarization of space. And Russia's, um, Russia's emissary to that group, uh, representative there, is a person named Konstantin Vorontsov, who's a member of the Russian Foreign Ministry. And he released this interesting statement that caught my eye, and I thought I'd drill into it a little bit further today on the Futurists. Um, he said, we reiterate our concern about the realization of policies aimed at the placement of weapons in outer space and the use of outer space for military purposes. Uh, and he made the claim in that report that Russia has always been very peaceful in its approach to space. Uh, and he wanted to, under, he wanted to add this piece. This is what stood out. We would like to underline an extremely dangerous trend that goes beyond the harmless use of outer space technologies and has become apparent during the events in Ukraine, namely the use by the United States and its allies of elements of civilian, including commercial infrastructure in outer space for military purposes. Quasi-civilian infrastructure may become a legitimate target for retaliation. Wow. This is an unambiguous threat wow. to Starlink. And everyone immediately responded by saying, are they suggesting that they're actually going to attack Starlink uh, with some sort of uh, missile attack? And they I'll have space-based weapons, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you what Elon Musk had to say about that, but hold on, because there's a little bit more to the story. Uh, so critics heard this, and we're very quick to point out that Russia's being kind of hypocritical here, uh, because in November of last year, uh, Russia tested an anti-satellite attack by firing a missile at one of their own out-of-commission satellites. And this was disastrous. And it also chaos, took the yeah. world by yeah, but it took the world by surprise. Uh, it caused the, the the astronauts on the space station. They had to retreat into their the shelter, into their, uh, their rescue vehicles. And the U.S. State Department spokesman issued a statement that said that so far, Russia's test of blowing up the satellite generated 1,500 pieces of trackable orbital orbital debris and hundreds of thousands of pieces of smaller orbital debris that now threaten the interests of all nations. Uh, because all those little pieces, when you're moving at the speed of a rocket, that's like a you know, ballistic. This is the uh, plot of gravity. Right. Exactly. exactly right. Um, so for those who are listening, I thought it'd be useful to summarize a little bit how yeah, Starlink is being used in the Ukraine. Uh, there are more than 11,000 Starlink stations. Uh, the downlink is actually based in Poland uh, for security reasons. Uh, but this gives uh, this gives the Ukraine the ability to maintain contact with their forces who are in the field. It's important for people to know that uh, previous to the war start, uh, Ukraine was using Viasat for this service, for their military communications, uh, which is also what the United States uses for military communication. It's a satellite, private satellite system uh, that, that runs military communications. However, the Russians hacked Viasat a day before their attack in the Ukraine and disabled all the Ukrainian communications. That was part of their lightning strike strategy. Um, now, what's amazing, and I'll, in a moment, I'll share with you how fast Starlink was able to respond 
But here are some of the ways that Starlink is being used right now. So uh, Ukraine's aerial reconnaissance force uses Starlink to control drones. And of course, those drones have been used to knock out tanks and mobile command centers and military vehicles. Um, but it's also used for hospitals. More than 500 hospitals and clinics have received Starlink terminals, and that helps them stay connected and online. And of course, the Ukrainian soldiers are able to communicate with their families. Uh, and I was surprised to learn that even in the uh, Azovstal steel plant um, in Marubiopol, which is that town that was under assault for so many, many weeks uh, by the Russian army, even while they were under assault and cut off, those soldiers were still able to communicate with the Ukrainian army and with their families and with the president, uh, President Zelensky. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar with Starlink, it is a satellite system, private system of satellites that's operated uh, by SpaceX, Elon Musk's space company. The goal ultimately is to launch 42,000 satellites into low Earth orbit in the coming years. But they have that in two phases, and we're currently in the middle, uh, about halfway through phase one. The phase one launches to put up 4,000 satellites. And right now, there's just about 2,500 satellites that have been launched. But that's sufficient for them to give coverage in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, they launched that in October of 2020. And by just five months later, February 2021, they had already masked their first 10,000 users. Uh, and it's estimated that they have about 500,000 users today. And by the end of 2022, they'll have about a million uh, subscribers. Also last week, uh, Starlink introduced a premium tier plan. So the cost of the service is... Um, uh, if you subscribe to the basic tier service, it's $99 a month, uh, and there's a $500 setup fee. But they introduced, in February of 2022, they introduced a uh, premium plan that is has a startup cost of $2,500 and then $500 a month. And for that, you get speeds up to 500 megabits per second. So that's, that's actually pretty comparable. impressive. Yeah, yeah comparable for, to for a satellite. Also, and, you know, I just ordered, I ordered one only operating half the satellite network at this stage. So, you know, the, yeah. the density of the satellites will help speed that up over time. Now, the service has degraded as they've added more users. That's quite naturally the case. Um, but what's really remarkable is the ambition behind this project. And this is really what I wanted to drive at. Um, because people have heard about that and they're like, yeah, great, satellite internet, that sounds cool. Um, for those who aren't living in the rural area or don't have like a second house in a rural area or don't ever deal with people on a farm, you might not be aware that most rural areas don't have broadband. Uh, it's just not economically viable to pull cable through the ground. And as a result, those areas are neglected. In the U.S., our big telcos always make the right noises politically about you know universal service and universal coverage. But the reality is if you live far away, you're very unlikely to get broadband from your telco. And so uh, Starlink is actually addressing a really important need but on a global basis, the number of people who are far from their telcos network is actually a staggering number. And so the economics get extraordinarily interesting as you scale Starlink up. So uh, Brian Wang at Next Big Future wrote a good piece about this. And he said, get past 5 million subs and Starlink's, uh, Starlink service becomes profitable. And it's a pretty good business. If well, this 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 is this is probably you know in in you know talking about predictions, in yeah. in techno socialism, I predicted Starlink is yeah. what is going to make Elon Musk the first trillionaire. Well, it's not just that, Brett. It's what's going to pay for his trip to Mars. It's exactly, exactly. It's going to be the funding for it. He's he's been very clear about that. Uh, what I was about to say is, so you know, they're about to hit the one million threshold this year. If they get to five million, the pro the service pays for itself. If you get to ten million, then all of a sudden it starts to fund SpaceX itself. And at beyond twenty million subscribers, Starlink is printing money because once you've got the satellites in space and that fixed cost is covered, then it's just a matter of keeping the satellites refreshed. And uh, so, I won't take you through all the economics, but this is all still Generation One. There's a Generation yeah, exactly. Two launch coming, right? So Gen One is yeah. just four thousand satellites, and they're going to use the they're going to use the Starship. To launch when, the that's generation exactly right. two, so satellites. his cost of launching goes down with the Starship, and of course, Starlink pays for the development of the Starship. This is all like perfectly yeah, yeah, logical. Yeah. Um, so, that's generation brilliant. two will add thirty thousand more satellites, and then that'll give them the capacity to serve two hundred million global customers. These are people who otherwise can't get broadband. Uh, so at that point, they're going to be generating $2.5 trillion over a five-year span. And that's where the revenue for the, space, the the Mars mission will come from. Well, then, I'm wearing my Mars t-shirt in support of the mission. Yeah, no doubt. This is like one of the most exciting things. I, it's fun to read about, right? So um, uh, SpaceX was able to move satellites into, into Ukraine uh, 
within a matter of days. Um, so just after the invasion on February 26, um, the, they had already been in discussion uh, with the Ukrainian government, but just after the invasion, the foreign minister, the, the vice prime minister and the country's digital minister sent a tweet to Elon Musk. And that's when he authorized Starlink to start the service. Two days after that, the first shipment of, of uh, satellite dishes started to show up. So there's a, a, a brigadier general in the United States Army, Steve Butow, who runs a space, space portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit. And this is what he said. The invasion happened on a Thursday, and by the next day, Elon had called together a meeting and said, I want to get Starlink up over Ukraine. By Sunday, the link was active. By Monday, 500 ground terminals showed up in the Ukraine. By Wednesday of that week, all but 25 of those terminals were alive and providing real-time data. That's commercial speed. That's amazing. So one of the things we talked about in a recent episode with Mark Pesce was how militaries are gonna be affected by and having to respond to commercial innovation and commercial tech and consumer technology. This is a brilliant example of it. The Russians thought they disabled the communications for the Ukrainian army and in fact, what they got instead was an upgrade, a massive upgrade to their service. Uh, there are, of course, a number of disadvantages to low Earth orbit satellites. Uh, they, uh, as astronomers complain that they block the view of space. You can imagine that 40,000 small satellites flying around is also gonna create a collision hazard today overwhelmingly the number of collision hazards that have been detected are from Starlink's uh, 2,500 satellites that are up. And Starlink's not the only company that wants to do this. Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin also has an intention of doing something quite similar. And the Chinese the government- The Kuiper Network, yeah. That's right. And the Chinese government has also indicated that they wish to launch such a thing. Last thing that you might wonder, well, okay, how did Elon Musk respond to this unambiguous threat from the Russian government? And here's his quote from an interview in Business Insider. Elon Musk said, it was interesting to view the Russian anti-satellite demonstration a few months ago in the context of this conflict, because that caused a lot of strife for satellite operators. And it even had some danger for the space station where there are Russian cosmonauts. So why did they do that? It was a message sent in advance of the Ukraine invasion. If you attempt to take out Starlink, this is not gonna be easy because there are 2000 satellites. So that means an awful lot of anti-satellite missiles. I hope we do not have to put this to the test, but I think we can launch satellites faster than they can launch anti-satellite missiles. So that's Elon Musk and a little view of the Starlink program and its uh, effectiveness in the And Ukraine. of course, we'll be, be using them on T-Mobile handsets as well. And, you know, Apple iPhones are, are now satellite capable. So yeah. uh, the people with RVs yeah. have them. They just, they just installed and them. And cruise ships now. They've, they've done yeah. a cruise ship edition. So pretty amazing. Right. Yeah. All right, Brian, let's jump back in. So um, Brian, what, do you think, what do you think of, of Elon Musk, by the way, Brian? Uh I, 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 it's, it's, it's hard not to admire the man at the same time. He does probably say a little too much. <laughs> Very politic. When he doesn't, but I think if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a photograph that I took of him when he opened his first Tesla dealership at Menlo park, we were, we were all invited as, as uh, nerds uh, to celebrate his first, his first foray uh, into the automotive business picture I took of him as we were talking, I think is just, is still his Wikipedia picture. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Right on. That's cool. I didn't know that. You know, you mentioned that, uh, you that mentioned a lot of, a lot of people actually, believe it or not, uh, their photograph is still. I'm, I'm looking it up right now, by the way. Let's <laughs> pivot to that for a second though. So um, to, to bring us back into the discussion we were having a minute ago, um, here is a very unsubtle segue back to customer experience. You know, Tesla is actually a very good example of that. No, it really is though, because they got rid of the dealership, right? They have showrooms where you can see all the pretty toys, but they are a non-dealership car organization. Um, and, and the reason car dealerships exist and the reason, reason they persist are for reasons that are far outside the control of the auto companies. So Brian, when you talk about customer experience and the evolving consumer, I totally am with you. I mean, I get that the consumer is evolving, but I think big established companies are having a lot of trouble keeping up with their customer and their expectations. And this is the source of some disruption. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, about that gap between the evolving consumer and the companies that can't evolve fast enough to meet them? You, you know, one of the things that I, that I do to put this conversation in perspective is I, I take a step back to, to 
humanize the words customer experience because it's certainly one of those one, like digital transformation sort of loses its meaning with every conversation. I add an apostrophe S to it. It's customer's experience. It's the customer's experience that we need to pay attention to. So how they experience something should either tell us what we need to fix or those, those insights tell us what we need to create in the Steve Jobs fashion of introducing something they didn't know they wanted and then they can't live without it once it exists. And the reason I say that is because you tell me what customer wakes up and says, I can't wait to go to the dealership today to buy a car or I can't wait to go to a dealership today to have my car serviced. And you'll find someone who's never going to be a Tesla customer. In reality, those experiences have sucked for a very long time. They still (laughs) suck. And auto manufacturers are realizing that, especially during the time of COVID, during these the chip shortage, supply chain challenges, where uh, cars that were highly anticipated became cars that were also dramatically overpriced uh, because dealerships could command that price, even though the brands themselves objected to that, saying you're going to ruin the customer experience, you're going to ruin uh, our relationship with customers. All in the all, all in the sake of gouging and taking short term profitability, and that's sort of been uh, maybe maybe a high level you know nod to the the challenges capitalism has faced in general. But with with that said, when Tesla introduced an Apple like model for direct to consumer engagement, the ones who stood up to fight it were the dealerships and the lobbies, the lobbyists who represented all franchisees and and dealers uh, saying you can't sell a car unless you go through a franchise or dealer model. Uh, And no, no customer would stand up and say they're right. And that's, (laughs) that's, that's the thing that we have to consider when we're talking about the customer's experience, it isn't thrusting or forcing or imposing upon the customer, the models that you have that keep you afloat or keep you thriving. It's to deliver an experience that the customer is going to love and refer and come back to and stay loyal to. And those times have changed and they're changing fast and faster. Uh, And with every new innovation, whether it's Starlink or whether it's Tesla or you name whatever's next, those things push the standards for experience further and further and further. And when they come back to a legacy model or a legacy experience, it feels outdated. It feels painful. It feels all of the things that create that decision in someone's mind as do I do I continue to put up with this? Do I continue to have a reluctant relationship with these services or these companies? Or do I make the break. So why that's yeah. important, right? Our our own research, and we, we have published this report called The State of the Connected Customer. We found that 71% of customers have tried a new brand in the last year. Uh, McKinsey's research has that pegged closer to 90%. Uh, and the reason why is for things that we've discussed, but also it, th- with this connectedness that has happened since 2020, this you know rapid acceleration to everybody becoming digital first, with things like Starlink empowering everybody to become digital first, you have a more connected and then as a result, an informed or over-informed or misinformed customer. We can talk about that later. Uh, but you also have this 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 consciousness that happens with that empowerment, which is, wow, I've never seen the world this way. Though these conveniences have changed my, this is fantastic. Uh, yeah. And I've, 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 and Brett's heard this a million times. I talk about that connectedness and consciousness as a form of uh, creating an accidental narcissist, which is once people start to taste these experiences and conveniences and speed and personalization, they don't go backwards. Uh, and right. every, every aspect of it tells them that they should in should have a better experience. So with Someone that entitlement. Said that somebody said to me that the consumer has gone from being empowered to entitled. And that's a really yeah. scary thought, right? For marketers, like, whoa, you know, they've got to please this un- un- impossible customer. I've had the experience myself. You know, I have a BMW and I love it. I've always loved BMWs. I like the way they handle. Um, but I'm also aware that Tesla has been doing software upgrades over the air for 10 years without any kind of glitch. And I'm stunned. Next, that you next month, I take car. delivery of my Tesla, by the way. Oh, uh, good awesome. for you. You still got to take your car back to the dealership um, for a software upgrade if it's not a Tesla. And this is astonishing to me um, because anyone who's got a smartphone, of course, has been used to getting over I the know, right? this thing for, you know, 15 years. And your years PC, same. 
but these companies act like they're working, you know, in a vacuum as if the consumer doesn't have that experience of that smartphone and they are unable to the grok the fact that the consumer is getting conditioned. You know, every time they use Spotify or every time they use, uh, you know, an app like Netflix, they're getting conditioned to getting satisfaction immediately on whatever device they want. Uh, and then they go, of course, your bank or let's say your healthcare company. Yeah, they've got a mobile app, but it always feels like they're kind of just going through the motions because the mobile app doesn't actually get you the answer you need and you still have to show up in person and i find that this is like the, the biggest blind spot these companies have is that they're unaware their consumers have multiple experiences all of which are better than their mobile presence how do you help a company like that brian i mean that must be a golden opportunity to give free advice out to companies i uh i wrote this earlier and I'm, I'm just trying to see if i could if i could find it uh it said uh when i need service i hope a chatbot is available said no customer ever uh yeah. it's this idea that you know chatbots or service or product innovation or service innovation aren't the failure of technology it's a breakdown in approach and design right it's this it's this mindset this fixed mindset that tries to take what exists and sort of build upon it to drive greater profitability yeah. exactly to feed stakeholder value or shareholder value uh, and to not necessarily create the type of new value that truly defines what innovation is all about uh, and that that requires new models, new thinking, new new ROI uh, formulas, and none none of that is impossible. It's just that people don't want to break from the status quo because it's not the world that they know. They're 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 so successful in the iteration part that there really is no incentive. Yet, no no company that's ever been disrupted. Probably, and I'll say this you know, just with carelessness, which is. No company that ever got disrupted did so because they intentionally prioritized customer experience. Yeah. Right? And uh, and I'm sure there'll be examples of companies that probably over-indexed on innovation and not enough on business, business model innovation. But with that said, look at every company that is historically regarded as like that, that, that cautious tale. Like look at look, let's look at Blockbuster, right? And the story that Blockbuster had the opportunity to acquire Netflix. I yeah. I always tell the story like, well, that that story doesn't quite put it correctly. Even if Blockbuster acquired Netflix, both would still be dead today because the people <laughs> in charge weren't true visionaries for that customer's experience and how technology was going to unlock new value now and over time, especially as, as markets evolve. It was constantly on squeezing blood from a stone in new and different ways. And that's, yeah, really, so. that's really the challenge that people have. So last but not least, the, the answer to your question is, is it a golden opportunity? Absolutely. But that means that I have had to not... I can't, you can't practice futurism in a scenario like that. You have to practice psychology and social sciences yeah. and understand how no one wants to be told. There's to a lot of to that to futurism, though. There, there is. You've got to anticipate Absolutely. human behavior. And when you're looking at trends and which trends are going to impact, you know, you are looking at how humans behave and respond historically and so forth. Yeah, right? we had two we had two futurists on the show who talked about psychology and communication, uh, particularly around people who've got a lot of resistance. Some people just aren't psychologically ready for the yeah. information. And if you yeah. confront them with it, they're going to push back. Well, like on that thought, so... So roll with me here. This is actually where I believe that, and I'm sure you'll hear it from others, why I love Peter Schwartz and his ability is just Minority Report is just one of the many fascinating things that this man can do incredibly well. It was about storytelling. And storytelling is a the the best storytelling. I, I, I'm influenced by the art of storyboarding, which I learned from uh, a Pixar storyboard artist and a Disney storyboard artist I guess they're one and the same, but in that the psychology of it isn't how you tell the story, it's how believable the story is and how relatable the characters become. So as you're telling that story about the future to someone who doesn't want to see it or can't see it or is biased against it, the story has to become how does that person need to hear it in order for them to rise to the opportunity to do the right thing. And if they do not, then, then we have to talk about whether they're the right person for the job. Absolutely. Well, listen, Brian, to wrap this up, we like to go full futurist, okay? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think 30, 50 years out, you know, there's no limit on this. What is the greatest innovation that you hope for or look forward to for the future that's going to change the world or change humanity? You know, I would have I would have said that we... we the, 
that we would have had uh, quantum computing in in full effect, and that the idea of of predictions would have sh- would have shifted into this relationship between predictions and solutions that that quantum would allow us to solve for. But I think the other thing that makes this answer difficult is that movie don't look up uh, and that even when presented with facts and solutions humanity doesn't want to see it or deal with it and they'll they'll pretend it doesn't exist and so 30 years from now i feel like we have to control alt delete and reboot humanity yeah, yeah. Um, i agree because otherwise that answer is not there's definitely matter. a philosophical change needed mm-hmm. right one that is humanity first rather than you know markets and capitalism yeah. first but listen um i know we've run out of time brian uh, a couple of things before we go first of all um happy anniversary congratulations to you and your <laughs> wife um Good. i know that's what's kept coming up next and secondly uh I, I speak on behalf of Robert and, and, and myself, and I hope he doesn't mind this, but we've really enjoyed having you on the show. Would you ever consider coming back as a co-host? Oh, well, does that mean I get to spend more time with you guys? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it would be a, it would be my honor. Absolutely. I mean, apart from the obvious scheduling <laughs> problems, it'd be great to, uh, to have you back on. You've been an absolute delight. Um, and, pleasure. uh, you know, we consider you part of the team. So thank you again. Um, that's it for this week on The Futurist, guys. Um, if you want to check out Brian Solis, you go to briansolis.com. That's www.briansolis.com. And you can read more about his profile and his books and his work and uh, so forth. Um, but if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a review, post it on uh, uh, Twitter or social media, wherever you can, you, you, uh, you hang out, um, you know, g- give it, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever it is, Podcaster, Stitcher, you know, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show. And, um, you know, don't forget to let us know your suggestions of who you would like to hear from on the Futurist Next. But that's that's it for this week. We will be back with another episode, of course, next week. You can guarantee it. And uh, we'll see you in the future. The future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futuristpodcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.